everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Thrive Theology Podcast, where we equip you to live thoughtfully as a Christian by discussing and teaching various theological topics. Um, Bethany and I believe that every Christian is called to be a theologian because theology isn't just about knowing about God, but knowing his heart. Today is part three of our soteriology series, and it's the last episode in the series as well. Today we are going to be discussing altar calls, the sinner's prayer, um, asking Jesus into your heart, the pros and cons of those phrases, whether people can lose their salvation, and if there are people who are beyond salvation. And we're going to be, of course, discussing the different views with those different theological questions. We're not just going to be telling you what to think, but we're hoping to offer you a balanced view of different denominations and theological viewpoints, thoughts on those different things so that you can make an informed decision. And maybe if you already know what you believe, you can just hear what the other side believes just for the sake of interest and being able to be balanced in your knowledge. So we're going to start by talking about altar calls. So this was my little section of research, and I was fascinated. Um, Growing up, I don't remember too many altar calls being issued. There was a time when we did communion once a month where you could go up and ask for prayer for the elders. Um, There may be a couple times when there was an altar call issued by the pastor for reasons of like salvation or maybe visiting pastors, but it wasn't really a large part of my growing up years. So an altar call is an invitation from a speaker for the listener to respond in the moment, in a physical way to the message. It's usually a call to get up, walk to the front of the room and pray with someone. Now, just for clarity's sake, this differs from an invitation from the speaker for the listener to make a change in response to the message. So this would be similar to Peter's invitation for the Jews to repent, believe and be baptized or a pastor's invitation for a parishioner to forgive their neighbor Um, For example, that would be something that could occur at a later time, whereas an altar call is a specific action at that moment. Before the Second Great Awakening in the early 19th century, there were no altar calls. We just talked about the pastor and revivalist Jonathan Edwards um, in our recent episode. He would never have issued an altar call, and the people who were with him a part of the First Great Awakening, they did not do altar calls either. In the Second Great Awakening, the revivalists were looking to bring revival to the old dead churches in their care. In doing so, they were looking for new ways to affect conversion, repentance, and heart change. In the past, these pastors had waited to see the fruit of a person's conversion before declaring their methods of success. Um, often, they wouldn't even know who the converts in the service were because there was no visible reaction or sign aside from maybe crying or, you know, facial expressions. In fact, George Whitfield would typically wait one year to see the life changes in a person before claiming them as a convert or declaring them to be a convert. And so these pastors were looking for a way to measure the success of these new methods, and the altar call was a solution. Altar calls were first used by the Methodists. So remember that the Methodists came out of John Wesley's Anglican roots. Anglicans had an altar at the front of the church where the Eucharist was presented. Methodists began using this space to pray with people who were under conviction, calling people to walk to the altar. It was more of a proto-altar call. In the 1820s and 30s, Charles Finney brought altar calls to the wider Christian community. 
One of his new methods was called the anxious seat. He would say at the end of his message that if anyone was anxious or under conviction, they should come and sit in a specific seat and a worker would pray with them. This response of a person to the gospel message was seen as a means of measuring convert numbers. One problem with the original use of the altar call is Finney's theology of salvation. Finney believed that salvation was directly tied to obedience and piety. Charles Finney was a moralist and taught that moral actions were necessary for revival and salvation. He believed that the moment a Christian sinned, they were back under God's eternal condemnation and that they needed to repent and respond anew to the gospel. He said, quote, The Christian, therefore, is justified no longer than he obeys, and he must be condemned when he disobeys. In these respects, then, a sinning Christian and an unconverted sinner are on precisely the same ground. So this is heretical, but you can see how this would make altar calls a much more serious and effective method as people would constantly be re-responding to the gospel to regain their salvation. They were rededicating their lives to Christ over and over and over. It was also very emotional. And because of the theology of salvation that Charles Finney taught, it was very fear-driven as well. The altar call was adopted by revival mostly by revivalists and the holiness movement leaders leading into the late 1800s and early 1900s. But at the time, there were many leaders who did not agree with altar calls. Charles Spurgeon thought it was superstition and ritualism. Another London preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, had an experience of seeing a person visibly affected by his sermon, but didn't ask him if he wanted to talk. He saw the man the next day, and the man said he would have been open to talking if Spurgeon had asked him that Sunday morning, but that he wasn't really interested anymore. Lloyd-Jones concluded that any spiritual influence that wouldn't last 24 hours wasn't from God. The Pentecostals coined the term altar call in the 1900s and used the practice widely. Like Finney, many believed that a person could lose their salvation and focused on right living. The altar call emphasizes that a person must respond to the gospel in a crisis moment, right now, come forward right now, and make a decision for Christ right now. Billy Graham and other revivalists used the altar call widely in the 40s and 50s, and it has made its way into many modern denominations. Now, as the origins of the practice suggest, repeated altar calls have the potential to influence a person into doubting their salvation— and repeatedly walking the aisle to re-respond to the gospel message. It also, if you remember, we talked earlier about Pelagianism. Um, Finney believed that it was indeed possible to say no to sin, so you could potentially be sinless for your entire life on earth. So there are a couple of different, very heretical beliefs that he was promoting during this time. So in modern times, altar calls are also used to bring people to the front so that they can meet and pray with pastors and elders. It's not necessarily used for salvation conversations, but can be used for other spiritual matters in the person's life as well. Um, And 
Bethany, like I know you said you don't remember ever doing altar calls, but I think you will remember if I mention this to you that there were always altar calls at the youth conferences we attended when we were teenagers. Oh, you're right. And we attended a choir of the fire as teenagers. That was just like, that would be in our area. That was like the big youth conference everybody went to every year. Drive to Toronto. Yep. Until, um, they kind of imploded. Yeah. Something happened there. (laughs) So we didn't have acquire the fire anymore, but every weekend there was always, the gospel was always presented at some point, but it, there was this emphasis on like rededicating your life to Jesus. Mm. Um, because most of the kids in these, uh, auditoriums were churched youth. They, um, had probably made a commitment to Christ at some point in their lives. So the messages tended to focus on rededicating your life to Jesus. And like, it was, a lot of um, music and emotion and lights and all of that stuff. Very, a very highly emotionally charged environment. Charismatic speakers who were really good at tugging on heartstrings. Yep. And like, there was probably some benefits to that. Um, I definitely remember like the Lord using those events to speak to me in different ways. But the danger was that like, I felt like I had to rededicate my life every year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think a lot of youth did too. And then, of course, you go home and you kind of come off of that spiritual, emotional high and your life is kind of the same and you're like, what's going on? Um, So that's just an example of kind of the altar call and like how, although it was used with good intentions, I think sometimes that didn't fully play out and come across in a way that was helpful necessarily to everybody in the room. I would agree in terms of like if there is somebody in a congregation, like in a in a sanctuary, who's hearing a, a message, and the preacher gives an opportunity for them to respond to the gospel in a meaningful way, walking the aisle does take some courage. So it 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 very well could be seen as this person is serious about what they're doing, um, and so I'm sure there were people who were legitimately saved for the first time at those youth conferences. Yeah, but there are a lot of people who were also going. Um, to do rededication or to just do work with the Lord. And I don't think that's wrong. Like mm-hmm. right now at our church, we're not doing um, the altar calls on communion Sundays just because of the COVID logistics of getting people up to the front and back. And it's just not happening. And I kind of miss those. Um, there's been a couple times where there's just been an issue in my life that I wanted to um, have some prayer for and going to meet with our elders who are at the front. That was a convenient and spiritually important um, time in my life, which was helpful, but I don't know if they've necessarily been used for salvation calls, particularly very much. So we do have some takeaways from this history of altar calls. The first is that in the early church, people responded to the gospel by getting baptized, not by walking to the front of a room. So we should be aware of this when using altar calls for salvation messages. Again, doesn't make them wrong. It's just something to be aware of. Altar calls are not inherently wrong, but they can be used in ways that are a little bit concerning. Conversions that are tied to a crisis moment through an emotional response are not necessarily suspect. Um, After all, our emotions were created by God and are good, but we do need to just be aware of concerns. Um, And like some of the others pointed out, like Martin Lloyd-Jones, this can really result in false conversion and sometimes even a false assurance of salvation. God's redeeming and saving work in a person's life are not reliant on a one-time emotional walk down an aisle, and this simple action alone does not confirm a person's salvation. Ultimately, when used with caution and led by the Spirit, altar calls and similar practices can be used effectively. 
And now for asking Jesus into your heart. This phrase refers to the act of becoming a Christian and is commonly used with children. The phrase itself does not appear in scripture, and there are few passages that even hint at the wording. The first one is Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, which says, Listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and have dinner with him and he with me. And this is Jesus speaking. This verse depicts the believer responding to Jesus and Jesus entering his life. However, it says nothing about the heart, nor the person asking Jesus for something. The context of the verse is Jesus' letter to the Laodicean church, which was not about salvation, but rather the Laodicean church members continuing to live for Christ to the end. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 say, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The verse speaks about Jesus living in the hearts of believers, strengthening them as a body, but says nothing about asking Jesus to do so for the purpose of salvation on an individual basis. Now, this phrase, asking Jesus into your heart, has some implicit theological concepts um, that are true. The first is that God dwells in the believers in the form of the Holy Spirit. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. Don't you yourselves know that you are God's sanctuary and that the Spirit of God lives in you? Now, this you is the more Southern term, y'all. Our hearts are the essence of who we are. And so asking Jesus to come into our hearts is asking him to be the center of our lives. One issue with the phrase asking Jesus into your heart is that it can fall short of conveying other parts of the gospel. One of these is repentance, which is, of course, as we discussed earlier, a necessary turning away from sin as a way of life and submitting one's will to God's will in recognition of Christ's position and work on the cross on our behalf. It also tends to underemphasize Christ's lordship. An important aspect of the gospel message is Jesus' kingship over everything, and this was God's plan from eternity. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 to 23, that says, And he put everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Faith in Jesus is not only about believing he exists and the Bible accurately depicts his life, but it also means giving him your loyalty. Felicia Masonheimer puts it this way, quote, to put faith in someone is to be loyal to their cause, to attach yourself to them, and in Jesus' day, to submit to their leadership. This can also hint at syncretism, meaning merely adding Jesus to your life rather than giving him his proper place at the center. You're inviting him into your heart to be another part of your life instead of saying, I'm going to reorient my whole life around the Lordship of Christ. It can also downplay the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Bible talks about all three members of the Trinity dwelling in the believer, not just Jesus. We see in Acts chapter 2 verses 1 to 4 that the Christians at Pentecost were filled with the Holy Spirit. In Colossians chapter 1 verse 27, Christ is said to be in all of his people. 
And in 1 John chapter 4, verses 13 to 15, we see that God remains in the believer. He abides with him. Now, there are some issues with this phrase, like we've said. In modern culture, the heart is the seat of a person's emotions, rather than the Hebrew definition being the essence of a person's intellect, will, and emotion. The Hebrew definition would infer Jesus being the center of a person's entire being. That Hebrew word would be nephesh. Also, the spirit is active in the saving work of the believer. He's not passively waiting to be asked to come in. It also simplifies salvation so far as to water down certain aspects of the gospel and perhaps give a person a false sense of eternal security. With all of these concerns in mind, it, it can, we hope that it's clear that there are some issues with using this phrase, especially with children. Um, a, maybe perhaps a better term um, would be asking Christ to be the Lord of your life or asking Christ Jesus to be the Lord of your life. That would seem to encompass more of these aspects of salvation that would give a person a better idea of just what it is that they're agreeing to do. Now we're going to attempt to answer the question, are there people who are beyond salvation? The term for a person who is beyond salvation is reprobate. This question has slightly different answers depending on your theological framework. The Reformed, or more specifically Calvinist, perspective is that God planned for some people to be saved and some people to not be saved. This distinction was not based on the foreseen sins of the person, but instead it was to show God's grace through the saved elect and his justice towards the non-elect damned people. Thus, there are people who will not be saved, no matter what, because God has decreed it to be so. Technically, they are the reprobate but we do not know who these people are and are called to preach the gospel to all people. So it's not up to us to decide who is reprobate and who is not. The Arminian perspective is on the other end of the spectrum, and it states that no person is beyond salvation. However, many will choose to reject Christ's offer and receive eternal damnation. In their punishment, God receives glory for his justice towards them. Now, the other thing to just point out and remember is that we have examples in history of the worst sinners encountering Christ, repenting, and being saved. The Apostle Paul perhaps being one of the most famous. Next question. Can a person lose their salvation? In the Roman Catholic Church, there are two different types of sins, venial and mortal sins. Venial sins are smaller and don't put your salvation in danger but mortal sins can keep you out of heaven if you die before repenting. In conditional salvation, which would be the more Arminian view, someone who has made a decision for Christ can later choose to reject him. This would be a conscious choice, just as accepting Christ was a conscious choice. An example would be Charles Templeton. He was a Canadian evangelist who worked with Billy Graham, who later became agnostic and an atheist. And perseverance of the saints, which would be the more reformed view, which would be once saved, always saved. The elect are the ones who are saved, and because they didn't have to choose Christ to be saved in the first place, so their salvation doesn't depend on their choice. The elect have been made alive in Christ, so they can't turn their back on him. Those who do turn away are said to have never been truly saved in the first place. The last thing we're going to touch on in this episode is the sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer is typically used as a simple prayer for a person who wishes to become a Christian. 
It lays out the basics of salvation in an easy-to-understand format. It's used for when people do not really know exactly what to say. So an example would be, God, I know I am a sinner. I know that I deserve the consequences of my sin. However, I am trusting in Jesus Christ as my Savior. I believe that his death and resurrection provided for my forgiveness. I trust in Jesus and Jesus alone as my personal Lord and Savior. Thank you, Lord, for saving me and forgiving me. Amen. Now, of course, just saying these words themselves do not do anything. Um, but of course, the intention behind the prayer is that the person's heart is actually behind the words and that that's what matters. Well, that was a lot on soteriology. We hope you have a better understanding of the doctrine of salvation through Christian history, some of the ways it has made its way into the modern culture in ways that you can understand your own salvation a little bit better. Um, as always, if you have questions, you can let us know. We'd love to talk with you about it. We have a couple of recommended resources, and as always, they will be in the show notes. We will see you next time for our season wrap-up episode. Bye. Thanks for tuning into the Thrive Theology Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to leave us a rating or review. For show notes, resources, blog posts, and a complete archive of episodes, visit us at thrivetheology.com. And you can follow us on Instagram at Thrive Theology. We'll chat with you next time.